0: Thank you so much for coming. I'm Amy Henderson. And as Ian said downstairs, I was lucky enough to get to know Miss Hepburn in the late 80s. um, I was sitting, I'm just going to tell a little story about how it (laughs) it happened that I got to meet her. I was at a little dinner party in Washington. And I was sitting next to Garson Canaan, who was the the director and the writer for a lot of the Tracy Hepburn movies. And, and, And he was just at that moment getting his papers together to give to the Library of Congress. And he said, I'm trying to get my next door neighbor, Catherine Hepburn, to give her papers too. And I went, you live next door to Catherine Hepburn? <laughs> you know, a really grown up person. And he said, yes. And I said, well, we'd love to get a portrait for the gallery. Now, I should have said, and Mr. Kanan, we'd love to have your portrait too. <laughs> um, but he gave me her address, and I wrote to her. And I got a, a note back with a phone number. and said, call between 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. So I called. And this voice says, hello. And I say, is Miss Hepburn there? And she said, speaking. <laughs> well, after a lot of hemming and hawing, she finally agreed that I could come up, because I, not because it's, it's me, but because I represented the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery. So I came up, and it turned out that she was just like you would expect. And I mean, she looked like she did it on Golden Pond. Uh, this amazing blue eyes and the cheekbones and the hair. The only thing that was different, she was, she'd been five, seven, or eight in her prime, and she was shorter than I in her 80s. But, you know, that's, but bossy and feisty, and, and she had a great sense of humor. And it turned out that uh, she had portraits of herself all over her brownstone. She lived on, East 49th Street, next to, well, Garson Cain, and and Stephen Sondheim is on the other side. Uh, In fact, she tells this great story. Sondheim composes at night, you know, bang, 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 piano, and Hepburn sleeps at night. And one night, she said she couldn't sleep, so she went out in the back in Turtle Bay and grabbed some rocks and started flinging them at the window and told him to shut up. (laughs) And he did, anyway. That's Hepburn. But she did, she had portraits all over This by Everett Raymond Kinsler was her favorite portrait. And Ray Kinsler is one of the gallery's favorite artists, too. We have his Tom Wolfe is right there. We have one of Jerry Ford, the president's. We have several of Ray's works, but this is great. And the fun thing about this, it was done about the time of on Golden Pond. And uh, she smoked forever until she stopped in her, when she was about 80, I would guess, because she didn't smoke when I knew her. And Rape depicted her smoking. And she told him later, take that out. And he said no. But uh, she was, as I say, she was a great storyteller. uh, She she liked to tell funny stories. She liked sweets. (laughs) And she liked uh, cookies. And so she always gave cookies and coffee. I never saw any of these at her place. I don't know, I'm, we never even talked about them. Uh, I, clearly, I knew she, she had them. In fact, the first time I met her, she made sure, the first, one, almost the first thing she said to me was, you know, I was a movie star from my first days in Hollywood. And actually, that's an interesting part of her story. We did an exhibition on her a couple of years ago for her centennial, and we were lucky enough to have the Oscars for that. But she did, and what amazed me is her persona She really was able, in the heyday of the studio system, she was able to mark her own way. She went to Hollywood in the early 30s when all the major studios were functioning. You'd sign your life away for seven years on your contract and theoretically do what they told you to do, but (laughs) yes. And actually, that works well at the beginning. Her first film with, with John Barrymore, A Bill of Divorcement, was a huge success. And then Little Women. She made a whole bunch of movies in 33. Little Women, which was wonderful. The one she got this Oscar for, uh, which was called Morning Glory, it's, it's, it's very hard to find. It, she plays a young woman who's intent on becoming a movie star, in, 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 on stage star in New York, Adolph Mange, who's in the film, Dougie Fairbanks Jr. Uh, It's not a film you ever heard of. But then she she sort of peaked in the mid-30s, and then she made some odd decisions. She did make these decisions, too. Things like Sylvia Scarlet, uh, where she plays a tomboy and Cary Grant's uh, a cockney, and they they try to rob people. Anyway, her audience didn't like her not being the Catherine Hepburn they'd come to know in things like Little Women. So by 1938, she was called Box Office Poison. And so she and RKO came to an agreement. She tore up her contract, went back home. And her good friend Philip Berry wrote the Philadelphia story for her, (laughs) which was on Broadway first, a huge success. She was going with Howard Hughes at the time, who was glamorous and young and very wealthy. And he gave her, he said, you need to buy the film rights. And he gave her the money to buy the film rights, which she took. And she bought the film rights. And sure enough, when Louis B. Mayer at MGM came calling, we want to do this film. She said, wonderful. And I will star in Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart. And, and she controlled her own financial destiny from that moment on. Now, I'm not going to talk about her old career. But I just want to add that what, one of the things I really love, the Philadelphia story, the, her persona is Tracy Lord in that, was her peak as a certain kind of movie star. But what I liked about her was she didn't stay she didn't spend the rest of her life being Tracy Lord she became she focused on acting and she did wonderful roles like the African Queen after that so she really and she knew Tracy by the mid-40s and and he was renowned as a great actor so I think that helped her kind of focus on the acting as opposed to just the stardom which she did so anyway she won over a 50 year span starting in 33 with Morning Glory and ending in 82 with On Golden Pond, she won more for Best Actress Oscars than anyone has ever still won. There are 11 actresses who have won a couple. But even Meryl Streep, we love Meryl, but uh, she's won one Best Actress and one Supporting Actress and then been nominated 140 times. But, um, so this is an amazing record. I want to talk about the Oscars a little bit. The Academy of Motion Pictures was formed in 1927 by Louis V. Mayer and some of his his buddies who ran other studios. The major studios were, during the silent era, from the teens to the mid-twenties, the major studios were kind of shaken down. So you had about five major studios by the time Talking Pictures came in 1927. And they formed the Academy not just to celebrate themselves, but to prevent the unions from taking over. So it was a very interesting kind of thing. And and, uh, the director of art at MGM, Cedric Gibbons, sat at the Biltmore Hotel at lunch one day and drew the Oscar shape, the basic shape, on a linen tablecloth. And he turned it over to George Stanley, this Art Deco sculptor who, did the statues at the Hollywood Bowl and things like that, and he produced the statuette. And this is an Oscar statuette. It was originally done in bronze, and the Academy tells me it was gilded at the beginning, but it just wore off, the one, this one. He's standing on a, can- a film canister, and there were five segments for the original Academy Awards. They were... Uh, Directors, producers, writers, actors, which included both men and women, and technicians. And the Academy was really small. Now it's got you know 6,000 people that vote. But in the, in the original bunch, I think Mary Pickford and Louis B. Mayer, Mayer kind of, they'd have dinner parties. I mean, Pickford was a major business presence too in Hollywood at this time. And they'd kind of decide who was going to get what. So the original Oscar, now, this one, really, the statuette didn't have a name when it was created. It was the statuette. But this is the first one, we think, to be called Oscar in print. Because the young guy who wrote about the ceremony came back, and let me see if it's a quote here. Oh, yeah, he, he called it. He, it had been a very highfalutin ceremony. Everybody kind of puffed up and being grand. And he was sick of that. So when he got back to file his story, he, there was a, a word, a name in vaudeville that people, like you're on the stage, he says, hey, Oscar, you got a cigar. And so the, the name Oscar just came to him while he was typing. And it, so he wrote that Katherine Hepburn last night won the Oscar for her performance in Morning Glory. And that's the first reference to the name and the statuette. And it, then Betty Davis the next year kind of took it on she claims that she invented it because oh, she says Oscar's butt looks like her husband's butt and his middle name was Oscar But, <laughs> but my story is the first one in print that we can prove. So, so this is the first one. And you'll notice the, the pedestal is smaller. In the, in the 40s, the pedestal was raised. Now, this was made of bronze and gilded. By the 40s, it's made of an alloy called Britannium and then it's dipped it has it's dipped four times it's dipped first in copper then in nickel then in silver and finally in 24 karat gold they each weigh eight and a half pounds so you know you feel like you're actually holding something of merit if if one were to hold it (laughs) never mind but somebody had to help (laughs) and um, Okay, so the second Oscar she won, and then there was this huge gap. She won the second one for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner in 1967 with Spencer Tracy, and that was his last film. And actually, he died two weeks after they stopped production because he, his health was so bad. And then two years later, she won for The Lion in Winter, which co-starred Peter O'Toole. And the last one was for On Golden Pond in 1982. So that's quite... Quite a, a range. But I don't know where she kept them. Anyway, so we had them, we borrowed them for the exhibition, and the estate, bless their heart, liked the idea of them being paired with her favorite portrait so much that last summer an agreement was drawn and we were given the Oscars. They're ours. Is you ca- that permanent? Yes. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes, and the Academy's probably ticked off with me, but because they were going to go to the Academy, and I didn't beg or anything like that, but the Academy doesn't show they don't have exhibit space and they would be put away. And the estate thought this is great to be able to show them where the, the year we had the exhibition, we had a million people come through the galleries. So this is a wonderful c- combination. So that's the story of the Oscars and Hepburn. Yes. What's the estate family? Well, it's you no, know, which is interesting. There's not much family left, and the, there's a niece, Catherine Houghton, who's in her 60s now and a writer. She does. She's a performer. She was actually in uh, *Guest Who's Coming to Dinner*, right, with her aunt Kate. Um, but the brothers are and the sisters. There were six. This was an amazing family. There was. In Connecticut. Her father was a physician. He was a pioneer in the campaign against venereal disease. The mother was a suffragette. They had six children, and it was a pretty, you know, gung ho, crazy, eccentric uh, family. But uh, no, but the estate there's a lawyer, an executor, and a woman, Cynthia McFadden, who was ABC News. Cynthia McFadden was very close friends with Ms. Hepper and lived in her townhouse for a while, and Miss Hepburn threw a marriage ceremony for her. So Cynthia's on the estate, too. I think it's pretty much those two people that, that helped. Those are the two people we had to deal with anyway. So um, yeah, the family's pretty much not there because Hepburn never had children, of course. Question. Yes, yes. The painting was painted at your request no, no, it wasn't. Uh, it was done. Ray did it. Actually, the Players Club in New York, which is on South Gramercy Park, Ray Kinsler, the artist, is very active in that club. It's a wonderful club. It's Edwin Force's old um, townhouse, and it's become. It was a kind of a sanctuary for players, actors in the late 19th and 20th century, and it's got portraits all over. And, They needed money. They always need money. And so Ray did this. And they made lithographs that Hepburn and and Ray signed. It was a kind of a fundraising. But this portrait was, um, he actually never gave it to her. (laughs) (laughs) So he gave it to us after she died. That's kind of how. But her house was, I mean, there were four stories of her townhouse. and, And there were, because she knew artists her whole life, In her bedroom, there was a portrait by Cecil Beaton, the Hollywood designer. There was a watercolor of her with short hair from the 30s. She knew sculptors, so there was some sculpture of her. But No photographs. It was all paintings or sculptures, but it covered her her life. And I don't know. There's a warehouse. She really wanted a museum, but she didn't want to fund a museum. And so there was a kind of, for the exhibition, I wanted to, one of the things I really wanted was her red sweater that she always wore around her neck. And um, I called, when we were organizing the exhibition, they had to dig through the warehouse to find it. And it. But it was her, it was kind of moth-eaten and stained from gardening and stuff. And we had it very beautifully displayed on a little pedestal. And that now is that they gave it to American History Museum. That's there, and not back in the warehouse. Yes. Did she maintain a second home in Connecticut? She had, well, there's a family place called Fenwick, yeah. in old near Old Saybrook, mm-hmm. but that's not in the family anymore. Uh, I'm, somebody else owns it. So she only had the primary residence in New York. Yeah, um, yeah, and she she rented the the townhouse in 1929, and then eventually bought it. in New York. Yeah, and the one in New York, right? And it, what's is that anything? Somebody else owns it now. I'm not it's sure who. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a quite a... I mean, Sondheim still lives next door. And see, I thought you said you asked her to if you could do a painting. Is that why you went to see her? We wanted a portrait of her that oh, she would give the portrait gallery. And not to do it all over again. No. She selected this one. Well, she, she would have. That oh. <laughs> the thing about Hepburn was that... And then this is not exclusive to her, is that even in her 80s, she kept saying yes. Liz Garson was saying you should get your papers and stuff together and organize the Library of Congress or whoever. And she kept saying, yes, I'll do that, but she never did. So her will was kind of an adventure, because she, never, she kind of got a little spacey the last five years. And uh, the will wasn't really as specific as it could have been. But yes. Well, I never saw them. She had them, and I think, I don't know what she did with them. I mean, they were probably in a closet someplace or in a drawer. And, you know, she, she would have been angry if she hadn't had them. <laughs> I mean, I, I keep thinking of 1940, the year she did Philadelphia Story of the Film, you know, huge success. And who won the Best Actress Oscar that year? Ginger Rogers and Kitty Foyle. Whoa. And see, the Hepburn, Hepburn and Ginger Rogers were not, I mean, Ginger's a sweetheart. But, and they had been in, in Stage Door in, I think, 1936 or 37 together, and Hepburn was not nice to her. So I mean, Hepburn was really not, And she didn't win for African Queen. So I mean, there are, there are films that she was not happy she didn't win them for. So, but she didn't, you know, I mean, she, she liked having them. <laughs> yes. That was my question. Was she not by my peers, or because she was If you were on her good side, I mean, she was if you were on her good side, but you, you had to play the rules by Hepburn's rules. I mean, <laughs> and she had a way of kind of telling people what to do. Now, she did like her, her, her favorite director, George Cukor, who had been with her from the beginning, um, they had a wonderful relationship and she could you know, tell him what to do and he would shape it around and she would think that she was getting her way and you know, things like that and sometimes she did but I think to be on her bad side would not be fun <laughs> <laughs> yes how many times was she nominated I think pff, not as many as Streep I'm not sure because those- Oh, like those The other ones that you mentioned, like bringing a baby Oh yeah, and and Mike, Those are, way those are great. Yeah. I mean, Pat and Mike, there's a great Garson story because uh, he wrote Pat and Mike for Hepburn because she was a great athlete. She played tennis, golf. She was very good at that. And so he, he told her that he was going to write this for her, and she gets to play. It's a wonderful if you're into sports history, you get to see Babe Dietrichson. You get to see, I forgot, Bugsy Moran, I think, playing tennis. So you get to see the top women athletes playing with her. And everyone was a competitor. She didn't like to lose. And that's what, I think that's what I, I, I used to tease her once in a while, one carefully teaser. Her. Um, you know, her head wobbled a bit. It was a family neurological thing. It wasn't Parkinson's. And, but the energy this woman had, even in her 80s, this focus and this absolute energy uh, I, I said, that's kind of like the energy bubbling out of the top of your head sometimes, because she was so focused. But that's what made her a movie star. Yes, yes. The movie The Aviator, yes. is that regarded generally as being accurate in her personality? And- I thought Kate Blanchett was great. I mean, and I think the people who knew Hepburn well thought that Blanchett looked and did a great job as Hepburn. Whether that story about Hughes—that's it's Hollywood. I mean, some of it was true, and but who knows? I mean, the thing about it was such a different era—the 30s and 40s and 50s—and Hepburn was so private in some ways. She didn't. It wasn't out there in public. I mean, she and Spencer were not publicly parading around, going to dinners and things like that. It, is, it just was a very different time. She would sneak in the back of his hotel. And, I mean, they did live together on George Cukor's place. And that's where he died. But oh, that was interesting too. Uh, after umpteen, well, 26 years, 27 years, and Tracy just keeled over one night because he'd gone into the kitchen to get coffee or something. And she heard him. And, and um, I forgot if she called Cukor, or, and then he called Mrs. Tracy. who they, Spencer and his wife had been separated for a long time. And when Mrs. Tracy came over, she looked at Hepburn and said, "Oh, I thought you were just a rumor." Oh yeah, woof. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it was just a very, very different time. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, what do you think her lasting legacy is or impact on Hollywood, or on American culture? Do you think there is a, a signature? Well, I think it's kind of what I what I away with was her incredible independence and her focus that let her carve out her own persona in the midst of everything else i mean she had a vision and she pursued that and i think that it's that wasn't a cookie cutter vision and i think that's why i admire her and her impact on i think the acting part of her career more than, I mean, everybody thinks of her as Tracy Lord and Bringing Up Baby, and that's the fun screwball comedies. But overall, I think that her contribution to acting as a profession, not method. She was very much anti-method acting, but just kind of, you just get up there. And as Spencer said, you know, don't stumble over the furniture. <laughs> but I think that, that her contribution over decades and as an actor is probably what she'd want to be remembered for, too. Thank you very much, Amy. Oh, well, thank you all very much.